Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm Matt James. And I'm Steve Hildrew. Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm really, really excited today because Matt James, member of the Rules Committee, long-standing Kings of War tournament organiser, has agreed to allow us a sneak peek inside the walls of the rules committee um so we've gathered a bunch of user questions uh we're going to run through them with matt and uh, matt welcome to the show we're really happy that you've joined us well thank you very much for having me yeah very welcome so before we crack on uh, let's have a, a quick hobby update as is our tradition so what have you been again up to in the hobby matt uh so since the start of uh the pandemic i have done the following i've done my food wall farming I have also done a table and a half's worth of terrain uh, for my home board, and I've just started replacing my orcs. So yeah, it's been a fairly productive uh, few months. Wow! So you've done, you've done. So this is your two armies and uh, a whole board of terrain. It's not bad, not bad. Uh, it's, well, the orcs are already all painted and stuff um, from second edition. Just I'm not entirely happy with the basing, so I'm going to. Uh, get get them more off their current bases and, and do something a bit more interesting with them. Ah, that's what you mean. Just me, I've just been uh, finishing up some terrain for tournaments, so I've I've kind of left the most annoying bits of terrain, which I find tundra terrain really annoying, because getting snow right is incredibly hard, so I've left them to the end, so I'm just doing a couple of hills for a beach, and then I've got a couple of uh, difficult pieces of terrain for a tundra board, and then I've got uh, nine tables finished, uh, ready for a tournament. Wow. Yeah, man. Okay, that sounds really good, Steve. Um, is that for your uh, an upcoming event or something? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. so we have eleventh uh, of October. I stole the date that was going to be Clash of Kings and pushed my tournament back to eleventh of October, and it's going to be uh, in Birmingham. It's fully fully booked up now. Uh, Eighteen players, and I've got two on the waiting list. Oh nice. So we're um, fully social distancing. Hopefully, we've got enough room between tables, and uh, as long as we don't get locked down again, things should be going ahead. So I'm pretty excited about that. Great. And I, I should just add to my hobby update. Actually, that is just the stuff that I've been doing physically in terms of making stuff i've obviously been doing a lot of rules committee work and, and working hard on the new campaign supplement as well during that time so yeah I, it, ha, it has been very very productive i can imagine yeah that when you say hobby time you kind of automatically go to you know um i've been painting something or building something but for you guys i should imagine hobby time is is, is kind of a, a an all-week kind of pursuit in terms of uh, rules committee work but we're gonna talk about that in a bit yep First of all, just for those uh, listeners who might not know who Matt James is, give us a little bit of a background about uh, who you are, where you live, where you're from. How did you get into wargaming? And then um, how did you find Kings of War? Yeah, so my name's Matt. Hello. And I am from the southwest of England in a place called Bristol. And I play most of my games at Bristol Independent Gaming. Uh, however, that has now been curtailed a little bit due to the uh, the current situation so hence the board at home so i can have people around and, and play i got into gaming back when i was a kid my parents my grandmother actually uh, to be more precise uh, used to drop me off into games workshop and use it as a bit of a crash while she went and did other things in town uh, so 
good got one some of the models back then um which i'm still using now actually a lot of my orcs were, were were things that she bought me way back you know 20 years ago so um yeah uh, I, i've got got those still and then through my sort of teenage years i didn't really bother with the hobby too much and got back into it in my early 20s when i was working at the time as a delivery driver and i was delivering to what was then our local uh friendly local gaming store so yeah i was uh, i was delivering there and uh, got chatting to the owner and he was like, I'll oh, bring your toys down for a game. We've got a, we've got a community here. They'll show you the ropes and get you back into it and all that sort of stuff. And, and so I did. And I haven't looked back since, really. Uh, in terms of how I found the Kings of the Port, at that same hobby shop, I bought the original two-player starter set because I wanted uh, another army and I wanted to do dwarfs. So uh, it came with a bunch of, um, a bunch of dwarfs that were, were cheaper than some of the alternatives out there and it gave me the foundation of what is now my free dwarf army um so it took me a while to get those done uh at least to a standard i was happy with and so i knew about mantic's product range through them and i started looking on the website and um i was actually using mantic minis in that other game um (laughs) that many people who listen to this podcast might have played once before we're allowed to say we're allowed to say the word warhammer it's allowed okay well, let's, let's say Warhammer then. So, yes, I was using Mantic models back in the Warhammer Fantasy Battle days. Uh, I was using some, some like, uh, trolls, uh, in my orc army and a few other bits and pieces. And then as, uh, the last edition, eighth edition of Warhammer was coming to a close and I was, you know, keeping an eye on all the rumors on various websites and stuff and, and not liking the sound of where it was going, I started to look for alternatives then and found Kings of War. And then we went down to the uh, local gaming store on the launch day of Age of Sigma. Uh, most people in the store who were Warhammer players um, had the same opinion of it. So Tuesday night was the gaming night at that time. And everyone was still sort of playing 8th edition and wondering what they should, you know, which direction they would go in eventually. And so me and my friend took Kings of War down there um, and started playing it on on one of the tables. And the local guys come over and said, uh, what, "What's that? What's that you're playing? You playing? Um, you know, these armies look a bit bit different to what you'd normally run in the other game." So I basically told them what it was, told them we were really enjoying it, and said, "Well, why don't I play you at it next week? Why don't my friend play whoever they were playing next week?" and um, gave them links to where, the, where they could find the free rules and the army lists and all that sort of stuff. And, and we just kind of let it grow from there, really. Very cool. So do you play any other games now or is it just Kings of War? Do you play anything outside of Kings of War? Do you know what? I do, actually. Um, I've got to say, Dreadball is one of my favourite games. I play quite a bit of Dreadball when I can. Um, there's another local gaming group that are also quite active in, in Dreadball and they ran a tournament at the start of the year. Uh, and I've also been up to mantic hq for a tournament that they run and yeah i'll, I'll take a game of, of dreadball anytime i've also got dead zone and i've got a couple of factions for that and there's uh, a couple of guys locally um who i can get a game of that with as well so yeah predominantly kings of war but there are a couple of other uh, admittedly mantic systems that that i do um do really enjoy as well i'd say very on brand uh, it's very uh, on message for the mantic uh, gaming uh... <laughs> catalogue there i just can't go back now it's like i've seen uh, 
I, I, I'm not a big fan of overly complex gaming systems where you have to you know, do loads of bookkeeping to track things. And, and, and Mantic rule sets do have like this kind of simplistic um, approach, which you know isn't for everybody, but it is for me. And I really like that sort of streamlined style of gameplay. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I just kind of go to Mantic now. <laughs> That's not to say I wouldn't look at other things. There are a few other games that have caught my eye. But as always, it's finding time, finding opponents, and kind of, yeah, just just finding the options available to you. At the end of the day, you play games that you have opponents to play with, right? If you're playing these kind of games, and if you've got people that are playing a specific company's games, that's what you end up playing, I guess. Well, yeah, and, and obviously there are other games played at our local friendly gaming store and at the, the other club that's near me. And, uh, yeah, they, they just haven't, caught my eye you know particularly the offerings of of games workshop and, and stuff like that i just find them to be sort of like overly complicated rule systems that are complex for the sake of being complex rather than um being streamlined and i look at it and i just I, and also that it's the cost of entry as well i i certainly wouldn't pick up another mass battle game just purely because of the time and money investment in terms of building a whole army but I'd be very open to sort of looking at other skirmish games and, and uh, stuff where, say, you know, you, you need a maximum of between 10 and 20 models because, you know, I, c- I can get that done, I can get that painted up. And, you know, if, if I only get a couple of games of it, then it's it's not, you know, 300, 400 pounds lost on something that I've invested time and, and, and money into. Yeah, definitely. So how did you get involved in Mantic's Rules Committee? So I guess I started to to get to know Chris Morris, who's been on the rules committee for quite a while um, back at the start, because he's not too far away from me. He, he came to the first uh, first Kings of War tournament that I ran in Bristol. So um, me and Chris got to know each other and I started to get to know him. Uh, and then eventually I was invited on as a play tester and I got to know a few of the other guys um, and started to get to know Dan King from the um, UK tournament scene and, and um, just kind of got to, got to know the guys really, and, and started to provide some quite quite good feedback. I think in the well, it must have been good, otherwise they wouldn't have asked me to join the rules committee. But yeah, I, I I just started to provide some some feedback, some playtesting feedback, and things like that really. And then eventually uh, a spot opened up on the rules committee, and um, I was asked to to be a part of it, and I had no hesitation in um, accepting that offer. How long have you been on now? Wow, uh, good question. I think. Probably two years ish. So just before, was it at the beginning of second edition or just before second edition or? Oh, no, 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 no. It was like, so Clash of Kings 2019, which was the final Clash of Kings book of second edition, was the first thing I worked on, however long ago that was. So before we move on to talking about the rules committee a little bit more, to tell, tell us a little bit, just for those who don't know, about the kind of the tournaments that you run and kind of your role as a tournament organiser uh, down there in the southwest. Yeah, so I try and run, I think, five events a year. Uh, four of them are one days, and then we do a two-day in July most years, but not this year. So that is called Southwest Clash. That is our two-day event, and it's um, probably one of the bigger events in the south of the UK. Uh, it's, it's always good fun. Bristol's a fantastic city for, for nightlife, and uh, we normally get everyone together to go out for a meal on the evening, and we there's a really nice sort of... Um, group of pubs a row of pubs down by the uh, down by the water there so in the summer 
Um, it's a fantastic event to come along to, drink lots of local cider and, and sit by the river in the evening and, and play lots of good games during the day. So, yeah, that's um, that's my two-day event. And as I say, I run four one-day events uh, staggered throughout the year, including my favourite, which is Christmas Carnage. And that may or may not take place this year. I'm still waiting to see what we can and can't do. Um, but that generally takes place the first weekend of December and everybody wins a prize. Yeah. Now, I've seen the video unveiling of the prizes from last time. Are the prizes quality going to remain at that, you know, let's say very stable level? Quite a low level, but... Uh... Who knows? I mean, the, the whole premise of the prizes at, uh, at Christmas Carnage is that there are a selection of um, Christmas presents wrapped up for uh, for the participants of the event. And the winner gets the first pick, uh, the second place player gets the second pick, and whoever's finishing last gets whatever's left at the end. Um, but of course, they all are all wrapped up uh, as Christmas presents, so nobody knows quite what they're getting. Um, and poor John Guns, he, he won this year, and he went straight for the biggest box, which was just filled with some bottles of water, which I'd put in there for ballast, just in case anyone gave it a shake uh, to see if it had any weight. And, and that was that was what he won. Other prizes included, you know, your typical Christmas chocolate boxes and stuff like that. And, uh, of course, where, where would we be without a prize that is batteries with toy not included? So, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's always uh, a bit of a laugh to you know, see who wins what. And, yeah, it just, just, just makes it a little bit different. Yeah, and while we're completing your credentials, in case anybody doubts, uh, am I correct to think you're one of the... There's only four players that have attended every UK Masters. Is that the case? I think it's five. I think it's me, Tom Robinson, Dan King, Ed Herzig, Dominic Stavaker, five. So those are the ones that have qualified every year. Uh, it's taken place since the start of second edition. Very nice. So... So let's do a little bit about what the rules committee is before we go on to the 104 comments that we had on the question thread. So a little bit about the rules committee. So obviously we know the rules committee exists. Um, tell us a bit about what is the rules committee for uh, Kings of War. Yeah, so essentially the Kings of War rules committee is a group of, I would say, experienced players uh, that have a good handle on the game and uh, work alongside Mantic to continue to improve the game not just in terms of, of balance, but also coming up with some fresh ideas and, and just um, being there as a, as a focal point for the community as well. So, that, you know, we can we can act on any questions that the community might have or, you know, take on the feedback and act on it accordingly. So we're we're very much members of the community, first and foremost. And, but we also have a role to play in terms of shaping the way the game goes, uh, where the game develops going forward. Right. How many members are there on the rules committee? Uh, so currently we, we've just expanded the rules committee and it has always been at five, but now we're at six. We've just taken on a, a member from Australia to ensure a bit of representation down under. Nice, properly international. So what's what's the split in terms of region and where people are from? So you've got myself, Elliot and Chris in the UK. Uh, we've then got Jason and Pat over in the States and we've got Mike down under in Australia. Cool. So... Um, as I mentioned, we had a, I, I, rather than bother to write questions myself, Matt, because I am the most hysterically lazy human that's known to man, I just asked the uh, Kings of War players community to uh, grace us with their inquiries, and they have done so in droves. Um, I could say we can't promise to answer them all, 
um, because some of them were stupid. Uh, and I did say uh, explicitly, um, we're not going to ask you questions about why are, why are this unit broken or why is this unit not good enough and stuff like that because I don't think that's particularly uh, fair or particularly interesting. Plus, it gets you know it gets a bit annoying. So we're going to answer some of the more uh, interesting questions to me about how the rules committee functions and how you kind of come to decisions. Uh, and we'll see how many we get through before Matt needs to get off to bed. So um, starting off with a question from Patch Adams, which is how do you filter genuine issues that need addressing from just like complaints? OK, so I think in the, in the same way that you would in any walk of life, really, or in any, um, you know, workplace or, or other you know, organisation that you're involved in. Typically, what we'll do is we'll look at how how many people are saying the same thing. Okay, so if we've just got one person who has got a particular pet hate and um, you know likes to voice that opinion quite loudly and often, then you know we're probably just going to look at that as just a, a, a complaint from one person, and it's not necessarily reflective of the community's feeling on something. However, if we see, for example, um, the same question keep coming up about a rule that is not uh, particularly clear, then we'll look at that and think, OK, so maybe there is an issue here. And how do we go about fixing that? Um, same for balance issues as well. I know we said we weren't going to get into specifics in terms of units and, and which units are strong and what makes a strong list and all that sort of stuff. But um, if we see a particular list or list type uh, dominating the tournament scene being unfun for people to play against and that becomes widespread so perhaps we see it win eight win one tournament well we're not going to act on that but then what you might see is that copycat lists start to take um take hold of the tournament scene and so at that point that then it becomes a problem that is sort of spread and it's it's something that probably needs looking at or, or tweaking somehow. Uh, so we will look at how, how widespread an issue is, how many people are saying the same thing, how many people are doing the same thing. And then that kind of helps us to filter out the genuine issues from, you know, one person with a particular gripe. Sounds eminently sensible. Now, Mohammed Gaddafi, General Gaddafi, over there in Singapore, um, he asked a question uh, about he asked a question about balance for new units, and it was kind of a little bit specific. But I suppose what I'm interested in is what is the process for balancing a new unit? So Mantic say we're making this unit. Um, how do you guys go about balancing that with what's already out there? So I guess the first thing to talk about here is balancing in general, uh, and then we'll go on to new units in just a second. So Steve, um, just for those. Those people listening, you actually came over for a playtest game of the new campaign supplement. <gasps> you'll be talking it's a secret. About. Am I allowed to talk about that? I did. Yes. Uh, and whilst, whilst you were over, I showed you a few of the things, that, you know, the tools that we have as the rules committee, including some spreadsheets which have been put together by by Chris Morris, who spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on on putting those together and keeping them updated as we as we evolved through playtesting and changed stats and all that kind of stuff. Um, so essentially what we've got is we've got a series of baseline units. Um, what do we mean by that? Well, for example, the baseline for sort of standard infantry would be a Kingdoms of Men shield wall. Uh, it costs 100 points and it's got, a, you know, it's got a stat line of falls across the board, uh, 13, 15 nerve, etc. So then what we would do is we would rank all the infantry and kind of look at, well, this unit's 
got less of you know, less nerve or it's, it's it's potentially got some sort of um, special rules. And we would look at how much better or how much worse that makes it than a Kingdoms of Men shield wall. And so we would do that for all of the units that are infantry and we kind of look at that and uh, and kind of look at the points costs for each of those. And then we would do the same for cavalry. So for the baseline cavalry, which is Kingdoms of Men Knights, we would first compare them to Kingdoms of Men Shield Wall and then base all the other cavalry against the Kingdoms of Men Knights. And we go through each individual unit type. Um, so we do the same for large infantry, for, um, for you know, uh, flying large infantry, for dragons, dragon similar uh, sorts of units to dragons, and, and so on. Uh, and so we would basically look to balance all the all the units according to that. Uh, that gives us an approximation. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, and then what we would do is we would hand that over to our play testers and let them test it. And then at that point, they'll be saying to us, well, actually, no, this unit's too good. And we ask for quite detailed feedback now, not just this unit's too good. But specifically, why is it too good? You know, I mean, we'll get people coming back saying, well, it's too cheap or it's got this special rule, which just it just takes it over the edge a little bit. And then what we'll do is we'll discuss it as a rule committee and we'll make a decision. You know, we'll see who, who suggests what and we see what kind of makes the most sense to do for that particular unit. So new units are essentially the same process. We would get a description from Mantic as to what that unit is. So they might say that they're going to do a new large infantry unit and it's going to be for Trident Rum. And they'll say, right, well, this is what they are. Um, sometimes we'll get shown um, some concept art or a render of what the model's going to look like. Um, so we've got a rough idea as to what it should be. So we'll have an idea of as to what sort of stat line it should have. And we'll find something similar that exists within the game already. So it might be that they've suggested that this particular Trident Realm, hypothetical Trident Realm unit, um, that is large infantry, matches marks from from abyssals, or is, or is very similar. You know, it'd be on the, the larger base. And it's, you know, got uh, uh, it looks like it's got quite a lot of crushing strength or, or whatever. Uh, and so we'll look for a similar one, and then we'll make some tweaks to, to that unit, to that base profile. And we'll change the maybe a few special rules and we'll come up with a, a rough points cost. Um, and we'll, we'll send it out to the playtesters, see what they think of the new unit and um, make amendments based on that feedback. I suppose a lot of it is around the, the playtesters looking at things like synergy, isn't it, really? Because it's all very well to say this unit is fairly costed. You know, it's balanced in terms of how it's costed. But if you're suddenly giving a flying large infantry model to dwarves, it affects very much the synergy of everything else in their army, right? And that's the playtesting part, I suppose. Exactly. And that's when we might look at things like irregular or, you know, maybe making it a little bit worse or putting the points cost up or something along those lines to make sure that it's still somewhat somewhat balanced. Um, even if it's, you know, we're never going to be perfect, but as long as we've got it somewhere near, I think that um, we, we've done a good job. So, relatedly, uh, Paige Neo, who's also over in Singapore, has asked, 
what what how do you manage things like the balancing of shooting and war machines how do you approach that side of balance uh it's less ephemeral than balancing a unit into a, into an army it's more about a game-wide balance situation whereby you want the game to be fun but you want to represent things like shooting in an appropriate way i suppose what page is edging around in terms of the the discussion is kind of the you know the predominance of shooting towards the end of second edition as a very dominant meta i suppose for the game i hate that word um and then it was obviously adjusted relatively heavily across the board in terms of baseline shooting ability. You know, how how do you manage that kind of level of balance? Because that's not a per unit balance. That's really a per game level balance, isn't it? Whereby you don't, you know, a lot of people basically said that being shot off the board is very, very boring mm. and they don't enjoy those games. And then now we I see the occasional complaint about, oh, shooting's been over nerfed and all that kind of stuff. How do you manage that kind of a balance issue, you know, a game wide level balance? Because a little bit of playtesting isn't enough really to, to look at that sort of thing, is it? Um, so we did quite a lot of playtesting ahead of third edition. And one of the things that we were all quite keen to do on the rules committee was, as you say, to, to change that unfun situation that we had at the end of second edition where shooting was was very, very dominant. And we were mindful of the fact that we didn't want to over-nerf shooting. And I personally think that actually shooting still does have a role to play. Um, I'm My Free Dwarf Army, for example, is running quite a lot of ranges. Uh, and the shooting there has been, been quite effective in the games that I've had so far. So I, I, can, I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Steve, Steve can vouch for what four regiments of rangers focus firing on a unit can do. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where the the meta at the end of second edition, and I'm not a massive fan of the word either, Steve, but I think it makes sense to you listeners. I, I just felt that, and, and so did you know the rules committee, that we were getting a lot of ne- negative feedback with regards to the amount of shooting lists that were dominating at the top tables, winning things like the Masters. And so, you know, that, that kind of had to change. It's a new edition. We had to freshen it up a bit. Otherwise, it's it's not a new edition. Uh, and it's just a continuation of, of the same thing. So, you know, the first thing to do was to remove the, um, the synergies with regards to, you know, artifacts and, and stuff like that that were really kind of powerful with uh, with shooting units. So if you look through now, the, the one that gives you extended range isn't there, the piercing item's not there, you know, your bane chant doesn't work on, on shooting anymore. Um, so those sorts of things needed to be changed. But that, that said, I think that shooting in moderation can um, can still be part of a balanced list. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's really um, it's where you rely on play testing and uh, not so much play testing, but players' feedback some more, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I kind of glossed over the, the part with, with play testing there, but um, yeah, we did quite a lot of of play testing. You know, we we've got lots and lots of battle reports from play tests. And, you know, the playtesters were generally happy with the state of the game. So that was the, the state that it got, got released as. Now, I think one of the things, I think there is some merit to the fact that we might have gone a little bit too far with some of the shooting nerfs. But as always, you know, we are constantly reviewing what is going on in the tournament scene, what people are taking, um, what stuff isn't being taken, what the community scripts of the game are. And so if we can... If it, sorry, if we do see something that is a, a problem, which kind of goes back to the first question you asked about genuine issues and, and, and complaints, then, um, you know, we do have the, uh, the yearly updates via Clash of Kings um, that allow us to 
potentially nudge it a little bit back towards um nudge the matter a little bit back towards shooting so um yeah i mean things change um we're constantly monitoring the situation and if something needs changing then um then you can rest assured that we will be taking action to uh to, to do that very cool all right moving on john quayle says which part of the job has given you the most and least satisfaction I guess actually the thing for me that was really kind of cool was when I joined the Rules Committee, we just mentioned that Clash of Kings 2019 uh, was the first thing I'd worked on. So back then I'd, I'd written a set of siege rules for our, our club way back in like 2015, 2016, whenever the game launched. I thought it'd be really cool. We, we did a little campaign sort of league slash campaign thing uh, and everyone had, had to play a siege game. And so I had that that set of rules there and I joined the rules committee. I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we had the siege rules in there? So I was like, oh, awesome. My siege rules are going to get published. And I thought that that was like quite a cool moment that gave me a bit of satisfaction. It kind of went a little bit further than that with um, Crush Kings 2019 because I actually suggested the, um, the cover up because Mantic had their giant coming out at the time. Um, and so we were putting the rules in there for the colossal giant and I said, wouldn't it be cool if the cover art was a giant attacking a castle? And it's just, I know it sounds really simple and really like kind of, I don't know, unimportant in some ways. But to me, I'd been a part of all the balance tweaks. I've written some of the new spells that were in that book. I'd had discussions with Mantic about um, using some of the vermin models from their warpath range and bringing them into the Rackin army. And then I've got siege rules published in there and the front cover art was kind of something I'd suggested. So it just kind of all came together and I just really felt like I'd made a mark, if that makes sense. And it was just really cool when I finally got the book in my hands and I could see that my name was in there in the credits and, you know, I could see the cover that I'd imagined in my head there and siege rules are there all published properly. You know, it's not me in a Word document anymore. This has got actual images and photos that Mantic had taken, artwork that they commissioned, and, and it all just looked really professional and really nicely done. And, and that was something that I, I took quite a lot of pride in. Um, so, yeah, that was that was obviously really satisfying. And then, of course, uh, moving on now to third edition and Uncharted Empires was obviously involved heavily in the uh, the, the new rule set that, that came out. So that was, you know, again, something that was, um, was uh, something to be proud of. And I've just written the magic supplement rules for the for the campaign coming up. So um, lots of things to be proud of. But I think that the uh, the main one was the first one. I think that was, you know, my my little moment that I had to myself and, and kind of thought, you know, I've actually done something here, you know. Seeing your impact on the game, isn't it? It's, 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 it's a nice feeling. Uh, the fruit of your labour. Yeah, I think the novelty of it back then was obviously... Yeah, it's the, it was the first one, so it was, um, you know, it, it was special. Yeah, very cool. Matt G says, uh, it's a question really about competitive play. And so whether you think competitive play is steering the Kings of War as a whole, the Kings of War game as a whole one way, or do you think the representation you see online is just a kind of small fraction of the player base and there's a more healthy amount of casual games? And how do you split your efforts as a rules committee between satisfying both parties? Good question. Yeah, I do think that's a good question. It's a very valid question to ask as well. So 
This is one I'm going to have to kind of break Miles down into to segments because he's covered quite a lot of ground in, in that question. Yeah, so I I honestly do think that the representation we see online is just a small fraction of the player base. If you look at Kings of War Fanatics as a Facebook group, there are something like 11 or 12,000 members in it. Now, that's fantastic. It's great for the game that that many people are interested in it. And, you know, long may that continue to grow. However, if you look at the number of active tournament players, there is, you know, maybe maybe 200 in the UK. You've got, I've, I've been told, roughly around 500 in the States. You've probably got another 100 in, um, in Australia. And then you've got, you know, various pockets in, in Europe where, like, like Norway, um, I know there's a, a scene in Germany and in the Czech Republic as well. Um, I know that the Spanish are quite into it and the, the, the French also. Uh, and there's a couple of little pockets of um, of South America where the game gets played as well. So if you add all that up in terms of tournament players and, and be generous with your estimation, you're probably at around about 2,000 tournament players. Now, of that those 2,000 tournament players, how many of them are, you know, your diehard tournament players, your people that want to qualify for Masters, or, or are they just people that are going along for a casual weekend of gaming and that's just, you know, they can't play every week at the local club, so they go to three or four tournaments a year kind of thing. So I do think that there are more um, casual gamers out there than there are tournament diehards, for sure. And, of course, the thing is with the, the tournament diehards is that they're passionate about the game. It's something they spend a lot of, of time on. They probably own multiple armies and they care deeply about the game. And, that, and that's absolutely fantastic as well, because it's, it's really positive to have that, that kind of input and that, that amount of people that actually really do care deeply about it. So the flip side of that is that they are the ones that will be online discussing the game more. And if there are negatives, then, you know, they will vo- voice those negatives. And thankfully in the Kings of War community, most of the time, any, any complaints or issues are generally, generally speaking, discussed politely and uh, in a gentlemanly fashion, which which is fantastic. So, yes, I do think that we do see just a small fraction of the player base. Now, in terms of splitting our efforts between satisfying both parties, this is something from my my own point of view, so not necessarily indicative of the uh, the view of Mantic or of of the rest of the rules committee. But I think we have to kind of look at it holistically and look at, look at the whole, look at the whole picture. Personally, with, with regards to game design, I think that if you start off with a balanced ish game, like Kings of War with a simple streamlined rule set, then you've got a fantastic foundation there for the tournament scene. And it also gives you the design space to do things like siege like the like like the upcoming magic campaign book expansion so you've got that space to go into whereas if you have a bonkers crazy game aimed at casual players then it's much harder to dial that back for the tournament scene and we saw that with with warhammer back in the days when, when we when we played that i mean the the rules there you know, there was quite a lot of complexity to the rules and getting new players into it was, was often quite a challenge for them to pick up the rules. And it's much simpler with Kings of War to, to pick up those rules. 
And also, when a game is that complex and it's got that many variables, it's, it's naturally a lot harder to balance. And then when you've got stuff like the crazy magic built into the base game, well, where do you go when you want a crazy magic supplement? You go even crazier, and then it just becomes mind-blowing. So I think that we, what we've got is we've got a really nice foundation to do other things with the game, and that is where I think we need to kind of be doing more um, more expansions as, as the edition wears on. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to do that, and we'll be able to add, add you know different ways to play the game so that it satisfies the itch of of the non-competitive players and the players that, you know, um, play casually, play basement games and are much more beer and pretzel focused rather than the ultra sort of tournament balanced, um, balanced crate. But, you know, I think, I think it is important to have a solid and balanced baseline for the game for the reasons I've just said, you know, it gives you, gives you places that you can take it in the future and lets you go off into different directions for the beer and pretzel crowd. And you can do that as an expansion, which doesn't affect the core game and allows the core game to remain a balanced tournament game. Very cool. So everything to every man. Well, we've got to be. I mean, we'll never, we'll never quite succeed in being everything to every man, but um, uh, as, as long as we're as much as we can be to as many people as possible, then I think we'll have done something well. I think the reassurance, isn't it, that, you know, you don't want to focus, you know, we a really good example is Guild Ball, uh, a game that focused utterly on being the most balanced competitive game possible right focused entirely on that tournament scene and there's a school of thought that said that killed that game there is a school of thought that killed that game however i read a very interesting blog post that explains some of the business decisions behind that uh, that company um, which we won't go into here but it was it was very interesting reading and i think that the it was too tournament balanced thing that they came out with was a bit of a ruse and a bit of a smokescreen for what was really going on there Ah, shenanigans. I like it. Cool, moving on. Uh, Mark Skolinski says... Uh, Mark Skolinski? I know him. Mark Zelinski says, how is the new team settling in? What's the first project the new rules committee will be putting their stamp on? Oh, the new, new guys are absolutely fantastic. So for those of you who are not... Um, you perhaps don't follow rules committee developments quite as intently as I do, uh, we've had three new members join us in the past couple of months. We, were, we obviously lost uh, Dan King and Jeff Swan, which was a, was a big shame, especially considering the amount of work that they put in. And you know, Dan had been on the rules committee in particular for, for for quite a long time and was always, you know, putting a lot of effort in, especially with regards to community engagement. So, yeah, big shame to lose them. But what I'm really happy with is, is the guys that we've got in to replace them because uh, we, we've just got in Elliot Morris, who's a, a UK player uh, based in north of England who uh, quite a lot of people will know. He was one of our one of our main playtesters during um, th- third edition development. So it just seemed like he was an unstoppable train at that point. Um, he was he was putting up these these blatter reports that into our, our playtesting group almost on a daily basis. He was really churning out games. So um, when we had an, an opening in the UK, I you know, Elliot seems to be the obvious choice there. Um, and then we got Pat in, um, Pat Allen, uh, who's joined us. He's based in Texas. And um, he joined us not long after Elliot. And um, this is quite interesting, actually, you're pointing the um, new US member because we've got uh, Jason over there in, in the States. And, and Jason is um, 
by his own admission, not really a tournament regular. He is more of a more of a basement gamer, but he's you know he's still a very experienced player, and put in a lot a lot of work um, into actually physically writing the rules for third edition. You know, we all had our inputs and all had you know various suggestions to make, but it was Jason who sat there and wrote and rewrote and you know sent all the stuff to Mantic and, and did that sort of thing. So. He's a bit of an unsung hero on the asking. So we were looking for, you know, someone new from the States. And so I started to reach out to people I knew over there and um, got, on, got a list of suggestions. And we we basically did um, what were almost like job interviews, you know, a bit less formal than that because, you know, it's an un- unpaid volunteer position. You know, I, I spoke to a number of really good people over there, but it was just decided that, that really um, Pat had the, the, um, the kind of, background and knowledge that that, uh, that we were looking for at the time uh, and was sliding quite well. The other guys I spoke to, as I say, fantastic as well. And, you know, I've definitely got a short list of people that I'd like to speak to again should an, op- should an opening, you know, present itself uh, when we're looking for someone else in the States. So um, it was a really good exercise actually speaking to those guys. So, yeah, Pat's been, Pat's been absolutely fantastic since he's joined. He's been doing a lot of work. Um, with regards to looking at you know, all our spreadsheets and kind of going over, going over them, looking for like little balance anomalies and things like that, where where um, where he can, and, and doing some really good work on that front. And also we've got in um, Michael uh, Michael Crossman who joins us. Uh, he's an Australian player. Uh, Mantic actually suggested to us that we appoint an Australian because they've got a really uh, quite rapidly growing scene over there. I think Ronnie went over to a tournament there and was kind of taken back by the size of it, you know, considering we don't generally think of Australia as a, as a hotbed of wargaming sometimes. I think us guys in, in Britain and the States may be a little bit ignorant um, <laughs> with regards to, to what's going on down there, but it's fantastic to see the scene picking up. And naturally, that, that meta will need um, some representation as we go forward and, you know, there might be things that come out of that matter that need to be addressed that aren't potentially being seen in, uh, in the UK or the States. So yeah, the new team has really settled in well. We're all absolutely really putting in, putting in the effort. And the first project that we'll be looking at essentially is the, um, is the new campaign supplement. So I've done all the actual campaign rules, the magic expansion side of things for that. And then whilst Dan and Jeff were still on the rules committee, there are some new heroes that are coming out with that as well. So um, they had input into that uh, and we developed those heroes as, as a team. And then also in that book will be balance tweaks for, for the coming year. Uh, and that's where Elliot, Pat and Mike have really had, um, you know, brought some fresh ideas to the table uh, and, you know, there are some some good balance tweaks there that I think will go down quite well in the community, well, as well as any balance tweaks ever do go down. But uh, yeah, that will be the sort of first first book you see their name in the credits in, I think. Uh, so yeah, that that'll be the first one, and then obviously going forward, it will be you know our, our annual updates and um, other supplements as Mantic uh, as Mantic dictate really. Very very cool. Rusty Shackleford asks. What is the process by which a new idea is raised, discussed, tested, and finally implemented? How long does it take? It depends, really. It depends on what the idea is. So, for example, if Mantic were to come up with an idea for a new unit and they were going to produce a model for it, 
then you know that that will come from them or then sometimes they even come to us and say like for example Riverguard Dambusters they came to us and said Trident Round Cavalry you know what do you think and we had various discussions and one of us went back to them and said what about frogs riding frogs and so that ended up getting made which was really cool so sometimes you know it's a bit of a two-way process between ourselves and Mantic Sometimes they'll suggest things to us. Sometimes we'll suggest things to them. We'll, we'll discuss it and you know have a have a look at it. If it's something more kind of rules orientated, it doesn't involve you know production of models or anything like that. So, for example, a new spell or a, a new magical artifact. Then generally we'll know when our publication deadlines are for supplements, and we'll work towards those. Now, for one of the Clash of Kings books, Clash of Kings 2019. We had things like Gantt charts set up and, you know, we we were going to look at, right, these two weeks, we're going to think about magical artifacts. We're going to have a conference call on this date. We're going to discuss them. We're going to work out which ones make the cut, which ones don't. We'll discuss the ones that are sort sort of almost there. You know, maybe it's too cheap. Maybe the wording's a little bit off and we'll discuss it and, and then send it out to play testers. So yeah, it, it, it all depends really on, on what the idea is, who raises it and, and what needs to be done. Um, there is no sort of uniform answer I can give to that one. It, it can be quite fluid. That's fair enough, I guess, really. So uh, I really like these two questions. We put them together, uh, and I'm going to ask them all the way through, uh, and then we'll talk about them. So Erasmus Berger asks, uh, despite the cries of blandness, I think that Kings of War factions have different feels and flavours just from the units available. What was the method and thought process that achieves that? And then on the other side of the, of the coin, Danny Graves asks, if you could make specific rules, not just optional army upgrades, designed to individualise the separate races, then what would they be? Things that would represent the character of the armies a little more. So, on the one hand, the, the armies are too bland. How can you make them more individual? On the other hand, the armies are really individual. How did you get there? Hmm. You'd like to answer that question. <laughs> what was it we were just saying about being everything to every man, Steve? <laughs> yeah. This is interesting. It's kind of very much about the, uh, the point of view. And I, I kind of wonder if... I do really think that people look at games like Kings of War through the lens of Warhammer, right? And I can say that because I never played Warhammer, famously. Um, not that famously. But to me, I think that's really, really interesting that people kind of... The, the massive individuality of the game of Warhammer, I think, has very much affected the perception of Kings of War as a game. I think maybe if you come to Kings of War not from that perspective of having a, little, a different book from for every uh, army and toads of individual rules... The flavour feels a little bit more uh, perceivable, maybe. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. What do you think? So it is, it is an interesting point. And like I was saying at, at the top of this, when we were talking about games that we previously played and having that discussion, and uh, you asked me what, what other games I play at the moment, and I said I couldn't go back to playing anything that was really complicated and had rules for the sake of rules. I think that's kind of a symptom of being exposed to Warhammer for for so many years, where you'd have lots of rules that were just unique to a, a specific unit. And really what we've tried to do with Kings of War and what the the, my, the predecessors, um, people that came before me on the rules committee, and going all the way back to sort of first edition, have looked at doing, is essentially retaining some of that flavour, but codifying the special rules. So, for example, in, in something like Warhammer, if we take Regeneration, for example, 
it was essentially in, in eighth edition, it was rolled as something called a ward save, which was a, a save that couldn't be um, modified. You either got it or you didn't. And um, you would you would roll a number of dice and uh, equal to the number of damage you've taken. And for each success, you would get, you know, you would, you would save a wound being put onto your unit. Well, essentially what you'd have in, in, in that is you'd have regeneration, you'd have something like High Elf Phoenix Guard, which would have their own subtly worded different version of what essentially amounted to regeneration. And it would all have these different names for different rules, and you'd spend most of the game stood at the table going, well, what does that do? And you'd be like, for a board save. And that was all you needed to say. But for some reason, they decided to give it all this really kind of what I, what I guess they saw as unique flavor and you know there's nothing wrong with that I guess but it's just I just feel like it's a long way round of doing something very simple and so you have these these codified set of special rules which now as um the first question sort of said was that you know we, we do have different flavors and feels to each of the units to each of the factions by combining those special rules, which can give each thing a very different feel. So you take Trident Realm, for example, with with Ensnare across the board, or you take Orcs with Crushing Strength pretty much across the board, and they do feel like very separate armies. And you know, there is some crossover with other armies, but that will, that will always be the case. And I just think it's it's not a good idea to start introducing lots of individual rules for individual units or individual armies when we've got such an extensive range of of special rules that we can use straight out of the core rule you know if we don't need to if we want to give a unit the ability to re-roll ones uh when it fails to damage we can just use vicious we don't have to come up with some other fancy name for re-rolling ones or or attach any conditions to when they can re-roll ones. We can just say they re-roll ones. And what's great there is that when we play a game, someone can hand you their army list. It says vicious next to the unit. You know exactly what that means. Um, it's not like we're going to be looking at this weirdly named thing, you know, uh, and saying to my opponent, sometimes when it's too late, oh, what does that do? Or, oh, I didn't realise it could do that. You know, it says vicious there. You know it's vicious. Everyone knows what vicious does. And I think that we can, we don't have to do that, that go down that line of um, giving things their own fancy names and, and subtly differently worded rules, because ultimately it, it doesn't really achieve much. It's just adding rules bloke for the sake of adding rules bloke, when actually we can give a fluff description of the unit, give it a set of special rules and differentiate everything quite well that way, whilst retaining um, the simplicity of, uh, the, the game has at its core. Yeah, it's about uh, retaining the, the the core simplicity of the rule set, isn't it? And um, adding flavour in different ways. And I suppose you know you don't want to take away from that core attractiveness of the game because that's what makes the game popular in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. So, something along those lines, anyway. Yeah. So so Matthew Tayo and Chris Davis have both asked. Um, in slightly different ways, how much leeway does the rules committee have to change rules? Again, it sort of depends on what it is. Mantic are very trusting of us, I have to say. And in terms of 
you know, if we want to change spells or we want to change uh, unit stat lines for, for balance reasons, they're generally pretty much okay with that. Similarly, um, when we were when we were writing third edition and we were changing a couple of things to do with uh, with movement or, or, or the way charges work, for example, uh, or the way cover works with shooting, they're, they're pretty much okay with with what we suggest. And you know, sometimes they do come back with, "Well, why have you done X, Y, and Z?" But generally, we can, as experienced players, we can we can generally give a pretty good reason as to why we've done something. So it would be, well, you know, such and such was dominating the tournament scene and people were finding it unfun or, or you know, some, something along those lines. And we can explain why we've done the things that we've done. So um, we do have quite a lot of, lot of leeway with regards to that. In terms of what units go into armies, that's very much a mantic-driven thing. I mean, well, we can go back and forth with them. You know, the whole reason we are... We are there is to act as a kind of link between the community and Mantic in some respects. So if there are things that the community don't like, then we can obviously go back to Mantic and say, you know, community's not, not liking this so much or this something seems to be popular with the community. Let's push, push it more, you know, and, and we can have those conversations with them. So they're, they're pretty relaxed with us. Um, they let us. I wouldn't say do what we want because that would be overstating what we can do. But um, yeah, I mean they're uh, they're pretty relaxed about what we do in terms of the rules. What unit, as I say, what units go into an army is is a, is a more mantic driven thing. There might be some things which mantic are looking at from a business perspective, which need to happen within the game, or there might be certain things that that they um, that they want us to do. So. It is it is a, a two way process, uh, and we always have you know grown up discussions with them, uh, and, and we can kind of make the necessary changes. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, there's two parts of it, isn't it? One is that you guys are passionate players and you're volunteers, right? So uh, at the end of the day, you're going to be trying to make the game better. That that's a core understanding that I think Mantic have really got. On the other hand, we all appreciate that Mantic is a company and it needs to make money, otherwise we won't have a game to play. And to make money, they need to sell models, right? There's no illusion about that. You need to buy Mantic's models, otherwise there won't be a Mantic. So we, I would expect there to be uh, a reason to buy Mantic's models. And I don't think there's any uh, harm in, in, in that being included in the rules. I'm not expecting every Mantic unit to be better than all the other units. Uh, but I would expect a reason to buy a new uh, lovely model from Mantic. You know, They're not going to put a model out and have it just be very rubbish, Right, so it has to be balanced appropriate. It has to be useful within the meta. Yeah, and so there have been times where um, where Mantic have said, you know, we've got such and such coming out. It's in the rules already, and we'll get a kind of friendly reminder that it needs to have a place within the army. Not so much to the point where like other companies have been quite cynical. Um, with regards to here's we're releasing this new model and it's the most busted thing and you must have it otherwise you're never going to win. It's it's never to to that level. But if it's something that say nobody's taking because it's a subpar choice and Mantic are about to release a model for it, then we'll get asked to maybe prioritise making that more in line with the balance um, than say something else that they don't produce. So. That is something that is a, a sort of discussion that we have with them. And obviously, obviously, you know, if that unit then 
like the steel behemoth was a good example i think that when that came out it was probably too powerful and it got uh got slapped back down a little bit but um you know that that didn't to my knowledge get any kind of pushback from from mantic it was you know seen as well you know we'd, we'd rather have the game be more balanced overall but you know our stuff does still need to be worth taking it's not like we're told make this unit the best unit that doesn't happen cool that's good to hear uh, there's a question so moving on to decision making within the rules committee then so a couple of related questions one is from chris davis one from from tom annis but kind of similar really so you know is there a member whose job it is to hit the veto button or is it uh do you vote on decisions and relatedly tom annis asks how do you break voting ties with six members <laughs> well very specific question yeah it's a strangely specific question so no there's not really a member whose job it is to hit the veto button we do vote on on issues so for example, in the recent uh, recent book we've just put together, and we've we've just started doing the um, Dash King style changes uh, balance tweaks. You know, we will put that out to a vote, and people will, you know, would would make this have a discussion, and um, people will vote. And generally speaking, we don't end up on a tie because gen- generally the, the we can all agree, or a majority of us can agree that a particular unit is too strong or not good enough based on the evidence that we've we've been provided with. Now, we might all agree that a unit is too strong, but we might not all agree on what what needs to be changed about the unit to um, to, to bring it back into line. So, yeah, we, we haven't had to actually break a, a voting tie with six members yet. We've not really been stuck on anything that is at three apiece. I am the, I am the current chair of the rules committee, so um, I know previously other other chairs have said that uh, you know or it has been decided that the chair would have a casting vote in that situation however what i would prefer to do is potentially go back to um, our playtest groups see what they think maybe see if there's some sort of compromise that could be made within the two sides of the argument that perhaps don't agree one saying yes one saying no but is there something that's sort of sort of yes but doesn't go quite as far or you, you know something along those lines where we can potentially look at um, look at making some progress there. And, you know, if all else fails, we, we can always go to Mantic and say, you know, here's the, here's the situation. Here's what both sides think. What makes sense from a business point of view and, and get them to, uh, to break the tie that way, I guess. Um, so there's lots of different ways of doing it, but continued discussion and, and debate and, you know, someone might come up with a new idea amidst that that helps to break the tie so yeah there's no sort of set set way of doing that uh we haven't had to do it yet and we'll cross that bridge when we get there i think tom might be imagining more conflict than exists in the current rules committee uh, in his kind of like little fantasy universe that he's got going on in his head are people have head canon about the rc <laughs> yeah I, I do okay well you can keep that fan fiction to yourself steve <laughs> god damn it Mark Cunningham asks um, a sensible question from Mark, who asked many questions about tea cakes. Uh, have the themes made balancing easier or harder? I think themes they're a, they're, they're a challenge. Um, they're obviously new for third edition. I think in some respects it's easy because we are essentially porting a lot of the units over from you know stuff that's absolutely absolutely fine in other lists. 
uh, and has been balanced accordingly there. But then obviously you have got the the issue of, well, what's the synergy in the army? And does that same synergy carry across when some of the some of the other units aren't available? So it's certainly a challenge. I wouldn't say it's potentially, you know, easier or harder. Um, I just think it's different. And um, I'm quite pleased overall with, you know, how the theme armies have, have turned out. I know not everyone's pleased, but then, you know, come back to all things to all men. And, you know, I'm, I'm playing with three dwarfs at the moment and currently unbeaten. So they're, they're going pretty well. And, you know, the same as any other army, we will be keeping an eye on it throughout the throughout the year, throughout the tournaments um, that take place. And if there are things that need to be changed, if there are things that are too strong, too weak, or perhaps it lacks a bit of synergy here and there, then, you know, we can look at addressing that in, in future supplements um, as required, really. Yeah, I think it's a different flavour to balance, isn't it, really? You know, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of theme armies, and I, you know, I can see them being a really nice way to expand and play with the game a little bit. And, uh, so, yeah, I, I can see that. So, um, Stu Wagame, which I'm going to say, Matt, is not his real name, but I've been wrong before, unless there is a Mr. Wagame somewhere. He says, does the Rules Committee have a role in introducing or testing new scenarios, and can we expect to see any in Clash of King books, etc.? He sneaked in a question about the Clash of King books. Outrageous. Answer it. Anyway. <laughs> so, the answer is yes. We do, we do have a role in uh, introducing and testing new scenarios. Um, we, we definitely do that. Uh, I, I've written scenarios that have appeared before. Um, so of other, so of other rules committee members, you know, and, and we do send them out to playtesters to, uh, to have a have a go with them um, before they hit the publication. In this, so this supplement that's coming out soon uh, will be taking the place of Clash of Kings, and because it's a campaign supplement, the, um, the sort of tournament tweaks side of things isn't as extensive as it might have been if we had two standalone books this year. However, there are some, some new scenarios based um, on expanded magic uh, in the, uh, in the campaign supplement. So, um, so those are in there and yeah, we, we do have, uh, we do have almost full control over scenarios and, and uh, how they're implemented. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push out and say that I can't think that Stu thought anybody else wrote the scenarios uh, given that he write the rules, and I'm going to say he was just pushing for him from the new supplement. So, uh, on which note, hold that thought because uh, you may be hearing something on this podcast soon about that, depending on how nice I am to Mr. James. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Brad Elledge says, "Does oh, this is a nice question." Brad's fully sucking up. Does the rules committee know that the vast, vast majority of players appreciate their work and efforts? Would they appreciate a hug? <laughs> what a question. So obviously that's a lovely question. I, I suppose, you know, uh, while Brad is not incorrect, I suppose what I'd like to interest is uh, ask is how do you balance? Because obviously you you know you naturally with a role like that, a game people are very passionate about, you do get a lot of negativity. How do you balance that? And do you kind of you feel the positive appreciation as well? Is that something you you guys are, are conscious of? Uh, well, I'll start with the negatives because I mean for me personally, I was a I was a football referee at the age of 14 uh, and did that right the way through, you know, till I was 20. So I've, I've had grown men screaming in my face over not being or being given a free kick or something along those lines from, from a young age. So what somebody thinks about the balance of a particular unit in Kings of War 
you know, um, obviously we, we we take it on board. But if someone wants to be impolite about that uh, and present their opinions in a in a in a ungentlemanly fashion, then um, you know it doesn't doesn't really bother me too much. I just kind of let that side of it wash over my head a little bit, um, which I'm able to do. And, you know, not everyone is able to do that. So, you know, I, I don't speak on behalf of the whole, whole rules committee or, you know, in any respect in, in that way. But personally speaking, you know, I'm fine with handling handling a bit of criticism every now and again. And um, as long as it comes from a good place and it's well presented and it's somewhat constructive, then, you know, I'm more than happy to um, to take that on board, as, as are all the other members of the rules committee. And what was the other part of the question, Steve? Sorry. Um, it was about how do you know? Do you do you uh, do you feel the appreciation from the community? I suppose you know that there is a, a substantial number of members of the community who are genuinely appreciative and really grateful. Yeah, we do. Um, to be honest, uh, a lot of people when they see me in person at tournaments and stuff do thank me for my efforts, and um, you know it, it is felt and it is it is known. Even if it's not always, uh, you know, not always um, forthcoming, um, I do know that the players are, are generally quite thankful of the rules committee. And to be honest, it was one of the things that drew me to the game in the first place. I know we we just sort of discussed that at the top of this, but um, one of the things that really kind of got me excited about it was because was was the fact that I was going on the Mantic forums as they were back in the day, and I was looking at. V2 development and they were kind of doing like an open play test and they had rules committee members, people in the community that were that, that were there, you know, to, to kind of help ensure that the game was good. And the game that I'd come from didn't have that at all. You know, we, we've spoken about the relationship with Mantic, how much leeway they'd give us to make changes and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, it's definitely a two-way street rather than the top-down kind of approach that I feel that some games have where the people at the top, you know, demand certain things and, um, you know, there's, there's little or no consideration given to the, the community and the players that play the game. So that, for me, was one of the big reasons I, I got into Kings of War, to know that the voice of the community w- would be heard. And and so I guess I'm thankful for the, for the rules committee as well. So, um, yeah, uh, and obviously when, when certain things come out, um, for example, like the FAQs and stuff like that, where we've you know, perhaps not dealt with something correctly, or, or obviously there's going to be a lot more, more conjecture and what may be construed as negativity um, on those posts. But then when we do do something right and we get a good good supplement out or a good FAQ out, uh, there's obviously you know quite a few comments there saying you know great, brilliant, thanks thanks for your work, RC. So yeah. I'm very well aware that the, the vast majority of players appreciate our work and our efforts. And um, one thing I'd just like to add is that we on the rules committee are also very appreciative of the feedback and the um, and the communications that we have with, with members of the community. So, uh, again, another thing that, that kind of works both ways. Very nice. I like it. So moving on, because we've taken a lot of your time. So uh, Donny Crush asks... How many hours a week do you estimate you spend working on things for the rules committee? I thought you can only speak for yourself rather than the, the other members of the rules committee. I assume it, there is kind of a, a variety depending on what's on, right? Yeah, it, it does fluctuate and there are peaks and troughs. So if there's 
a supplement coming out, then you know we'll be working towards publication deadlines and, and stuff like that. And naturally, those times are busier. We're in what is relative, a relatively quiet period at the moment because we've got the supplement done. So we're just looking at things that are coming out, tournaments, uh, you know, answering community questions, and kind of working on anything that might need to be FAQ going forward. So. Yeah, it really does depend. I mean, for example, the last FAQ that came out, there was an issue with regards to multi-charges and making room for, for units. And I know that... I, I barely noticed, Matt. I barely noticed. Yeah, that, that was quite a big one. But I know that we... I, I know personally that that weekend, when that kind of all kicked off and we were working on various different wordings and things like that, I realised that I'd spent something like 16 hours just on that, um, just trying to get that, that particular thing sorted. And that was um, someone doing a revision of the of the wording for the FAQ and us looking at it and going, yeah, but if we read it that way, then it opens up this problem. Okay, so now how do we amend the wording so that problem's sorted? And go, just going back and forth, having discussions about it, uploading different versions of wordings and you know presenting them to each other until we actually settled on one that worked and it worked quite well in my opinion so that was just kind of like one weekend that i kind of just spent talking on facebook and you know dealing with various documents and then not realizing where the day had gone so you know it really can come out of the blue uh when we're required to sort of down down everything else and, and sort of pay more attention to rules committee stuff we've got a group chat that all of us rules committee guys are in and that seldom has a quiet day sometimes it's quite funny because obviously we've got three different time zones now and uh, sometimes i'll wake up to a message from or i'll be halfway through the afternoon depending on what, what you know who's replying and it'll be say like mike in australia or jason over in america saying uh, 200 messages. What did I miss? Can someone give me the approved, the approved version? Um, oh, because we've all been there, you know, talking about stuff whilst uh, whilst they've been asleep. So we're, I mean, we're we're trying to work work a bit smarter now, given that we've got you know different time zones and we're, we're looking at ways of having documents that we put stuff in and, and give our opinions and voting and all that sort of stuff. Because a lot of the time we were doing this via Skype calls, which was fine across two time zones. Um, but obviously, the third time zone to consider it is a little bit more of a challenge. And some of these calls can go on for like four hours. So, yeah, it is, it is a, probably a little bit more work than some people realize. I know that um, I mentioned Chris, uh, Chris Morris and Jason previously, but they, they really are the unsung heroes of, of the rules committee. And um, people don't tend to have them in their mind as much as some of the other guys who are more active on the tournament scene. But I've showed you the spreadsheets that Chris Morris has um, almost exclusively worked on there. And, uh, you know, I know how many hours he's put into that. And it's quite astonishing. We did have an exciting an exciting evening looking at spreadsheets together. It was uh, every accountant dream, I find. But uh, they are actually very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Chris put a lot of work into that. Jason, as I say, wrote, wrote a lot of stuff of the rules for V3. Um, I mean, we, we've all had input into all of it, but sometimes it's just easier for one person to look after a document um, rather than um, I remember there was one evening where me and Dan went and changed some things that we'd been discussed and we 
done it wrong. So um, <laughs> we'd, we'd, uh, we'd, you know, it wasn't so much what the changes were, it was the, the format of how we'd done it and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that didn't make some people very happy. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, it's a, it's a very collaborative, um, collaborative process. It, as I say, it really does depend on what we've got going on. I've spent quite a lot of time working on the uh, upcoming uh, magic supplement. And that, you know, if I was to sit down and work out how many hours I've done, I think I'd probably scare myself. More so if I started having things like playtesting and doing these podcasts and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it can be t- quite a time-consuming thing. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it because I'm, um, I'm just really grateful that I've got an opportunity to, to work on shaping a, a hobby that, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about and uh, hopefully adding some value for people in the community. Very cool. Yeah, I find it's healthy. It's like um, I dislike the trend in modern video games to show you how many hours you've spent playing that video game. I don't want to know. I don't want to know that I spent 200 hours on that. I'd rather I'd rather live in blissful. I remember that, similar principle. that sort of started with the old um, football manager video games back in the day. And it used to give you a little message like um, it tell you, like, you need to brush your teeth or you need to change your underpants or, you know, all these sorts of things as, as you accumulated hours, which was which was a funny way of doing it. But, yeah, <laughs> I used to be on a group, a group chat with uh, the guy who wrote Football Manager, Football Manager. Anyway, moving on, moving on. So um, another pair of questions, which I think go together beautifully. So Erasmus Berger again asks, do allies really need to be a thing? And then John Crow Hogg asks, how safe is the long running ally system that so many people love when devising army systems? So allies are terrible. Uh, are you going to get rid of them? And also allies are brilliant. Please don't get rid of them. All things to all men. <laughs> it's a running theme here, isn't it? It is a bit. So allies, what was the principle behind allies? Is it just a Warhammer thing that was carried oh, over? In fact, actually, it's a Kings of War thing. Uh, allies wasn't really a thing in in warhammer you could take your army and and that was pretty much it aside from i don't know friendly games but then you know if me and you were playing and we wanted to make up the rules as we went along there's you know nothing to stop us doing that so um you could do it in that sense back in those days but um no it's uh it's something that i um i, I was new to when when kings of war version two came out and i started playing that so yeah i don't really know how the decision was made to allow allies in the first place it might have been uh you know i'd, I'd be well i'd be speculating to say why i think it might have been however i personally like the ally system like again that is my own personal view i'm not, I'm not sure what the the other guys particularly the new guys on the rules committee think about it and that might be something we, we revisit one day. So to answer John's question about how safe it is, um, who, who knows? Uh, we might get told by Mantic one day, no more allies. But, um, you know, it, it might come from them. It might be a decision we make. It might be a discussion that happens. But I think one of the things people really started to dislike about allies and was their prevalence in version two. And I think that was often because there was some some balance issues with, with version two, which we've tried to address in version three. I'm not saying we fully addressed them, but uh, you'd see a lot of armies taking the same allies. So it'd be things like 
tortured souls and gargoyles from abyssals or you get ogre shooters or back in the day when um, at the very start of version two when allies could take artifacts you'd see um, shooting hordes with the, um, the plus one to hit magic item which name escapes me right now um, so you'd see a lot of the same types of allied units and I think with version of three where we've had a chance to sort of rebalance the game uh, rebalance the factions I think it's a lot easier now to take a, a, a pure army list if you if you like um, for example I used to take allies all the time in my orcs when I was playing them in version two I'd either take the tortured soul regiment or I'd take a couple of regiments of flea bag rider sniffs and I do that to plug gaps in the orc list where I didn't have anything that, sh- that really shot beyond skulks, which, you know, wasn't really going to work with my army. And I needed something nice and quick, uh, you know, something speed 10 to, to stop, to stop my gore riders taking the alpha charge from, you know, things that were faster than them. So now in version three, I've got skulk outriders. So that gap has kind of been plugged within the orc list. So I can run them as a as a screen, like I used to run my tortured souls, or I can take more of them and have that maneuverable shooting platform that my flea bag by the sniffs used to give me um, back in the day. So I think now that that's one reason why um, allies potentially are less popular in version three is that there are, you know, the the, the factions themselves are a little bit more more balanced than in version two. So there's not necessarily the need to do it. Um, that there are some gaps that have been plugged, which means that you don't have to take the stuff from other lists, you know, to, to fill those holes in, in your list. And the third thing is obviously, you know, that there's um, a few of those uh, those options now that we used to see as allies all the time have been made irregular. So it's actually impossible to do. So I'm quite happy with the situation that we find ourselves in with allies at the moment because Tournament results aren't showing that everyone's taking allies. I think the people that are taking allies are probably doing so more from a uh, kind of, I've got this cool model and I want to use it point of view rather than this is what the ultimate filth is in the game, which I, which I'm fine with. Uh, so I think a lot of the gripes, I think if the people asking if allies really need to be a thing or were criticising the presence of the ally system in the game, were saying that maybe a year ago or back, um, you know, mid second edition, I think the, that would be a much more valid concern than it is now in third edition. So I think it might be a little bit of a holdover as to why that's unpopular because we, you know, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing it. And when we are seeing it, it's not, you know, dominating the tournament scene or anything. I mean, that might change. Somebody might suddenly come out with a list that, uh, exploits allies and, and uses them and, and does really well with it. But in that situation, you know, it might just be that there's a specific unit that they're doing it with and maybe we alter that unit rather than alter the ally system. So I'm all for giving people more flexibility, more options, uh, and letting people do what they want. And I think that that kind of makes it incumbent upon us to ensure that those options, whilst available, aren't a problem. Yeah, it's it's a balancing issue, isn't it? Because I think there are people who will use allies in an attempt to find the most broken combination, and we know you know kind of who those people are and and, and how they like to play. And then there are people who are using it to plug a gap in a list, a perceived gap 
right? But there are people doing it for flavor reasons as well. They might, you know, for theme reasons. And one of the ones that I was really interested in is that people use it to test out units from other armies. Because actually, I think I might like to have a uh, this army. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll, I'll put, an, uh, you know, I'll see how that unit feels with the rest of my army. And then I'll go with there. And that's kind of, I feel, the commercial reason to have it in. Because if people can try out allies... They're one unit into buying a new army, and then suddenly they're they're buying models and and and, in, and improving on that, and that's kind of another reason to keep it in, exactly. despite the fact that I personally don't like allies very much. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much a purist. Uh, and I, I think that's a good point to make, Steve. You know, if if you're trying out new stuff, then for example, if I was going to start a goblin army, I've got a bunch of goblins uh, in a box upstairs that I've, I've not seen the light of day for you know five six years, and um, maybe I'll get get some of them based up and start slotting them in with my orcs or something um to, to you know see if i see if i like those units and maybe going forward i'll start buying semantic models and and making a mantic army of goblins or, or something along those lines so um yeah it's, it's a good point you raise and you know like i say i, I don't see allies being a, a particular problem in the game at the moment if that changes we'll, we'll review it but um you know as, as things stand you know, not really seeing it as something that needs to be fixed. Okie dokie. Thorben Newman asks, is every rules committee member equally responsible for each faction or does everyone have a subset of armies they are primarily responsible for? No, it's definitely shared responsibility. I mean, we've all got our own armies and that, you know, our, our experiences with those armies might might come into play when we're discussing things. But yeah, it's it's all a or a shared responsibility in that regard because you know ultimately whilst we might have our own armies we've all played against all the other armies so um we generally have a good handle on what each army can do what what the units can do and yeah we'll we'll soon be um you know if someone's on someone on the rules committee is particularly vocal about buffing their own army you know that will soon get shot down uh so uh yeah it's, it's not that we're particularly responsible for a subset of armies but for example i've mentioned that i play orcs and you know i've also got a kingdoms of men army a rakin army and uh, a dwarf army a free dwarf army as it is now and so given that i've got some experience um with with those armies it might be that people turn to me and say well matt you know what what do you think about this particular unit and i'll say well no everyone's moaning about them but I run them in my list and I'm doing pretty well with them. So, you know, uh, I think they're okay. Or I might turn around and say, well, no, I never take that unit because I agree with the people that are saying that it's rubbish. So, you know, it, it, it does, um, you know, our, our own experiences with different armies does come into it, but it is a shared responsibility. And, we, you know, we've all got the ability to raise uh, an issue with an army and say, you know, this isn't isn't quite right, and you know that opens it up for discussion, and we'll look at what we can do about making it right. Very cool. And the last last player question I'm going to ask because we have taken a lot of your time, and I really do appreciate right. your time. Fred Ozano asks, um, is it do you think it's a good or a bad thing that players know the names of the rules committee? Does it attract a level of unwanted attention to its members? Yeah, it's a good thing. I think. You know, it, it's it's good that people know who we are. Uh, it makes us approachable. It means that when we state uh, an answer to a rules query on online, on social media, you know, it's, it carries a weight of authority behind it rather than 
people, you know, if I was answering a question and people didn't know that I was on the rules committee, well, other people might come back and say, oh, no, you're wrong. And I said, well, no, I'm not wrong. I wrote it. So, yeah, I think I think from that point of view, it probably is a good idea that, that, that people do know who we are. It doesn't really matter in some respects because, you know, we, we don't need things to be flagged for our attention or anything like that as such. We just kind of we're all on fanatics. We're all on various different social medias. Uh, we've got a lot of players on the RC. Sorry, a lot of people who are on the RC are quite prominent tournament players. So if there are issues or things that come up, you know, chances are we're going to see it. So whilst I don't think it matters too much, I think it is a good thing overall. And, you know, it's not like we're getting, you know, abuse from people or, or anything like that. So, you know, like, like we like we covered earlier, most people are quite thankful of the, um, of the efforts that we put in. So, yeah, I don't see any need for that to change. And I'm, you know, more than happy that, that people kind of know who I am and feel that they can approach me and, um, you know, raise any issues if they need to. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. So one last thing I wanted to ask before we wrapped up, and if people, you know, quite often, uh, I guess, send messages to you guys or, or post, hey, rules committee, blah, 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 blah. If somebody's got an idea, right, what do they do with it? Uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, we're uh, constantly monitoring social media we're looking at various platforms you know forums and, and you know, if you see a certain event if, uh, you know we're around then um then by all means you know speak to us or you know if you're not in our local area um we're not going to see what the tournament you can always post it online and what you'll get there is you'll actually get not just our feedback but you'll get the feedback of the community as well and that's actually really helpful sometimes because there are things that have been put into FAQs and um, into, into the rules and other such things where they have started as an idea that someone has posted on on Facebook or on, uh, you know, a forum or something along those lines. So we do pay attention to those things and we do see those things. And so it's, um, you know, a great platform for sharing ideas. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the germ of the idea might be there, but potentially the, the person... Uh, writing it hasn't maybe considered some knock-on effects that that change or idea has and you know but if, if we can see that there's the germ of a good idea there then we can take it we can develop it we can make sure that it does work within the game and you know we can also see what everybody else thinks of it as well so um even if we don't reply to you directly you know it might be that we're uh having a discussion in our group chat and um you know someone's going to wake up at you know, whatever time they get up and ask what the last 200 messages in the group chat were about, and it will be about your idea. So that can happen. It does happen. And, you know, I've said it numerous times throughout this podcast, it's it's always really good to have community feedback, and we really value that. Awesome. I just want to say thank you, Matt, for your time today. I hope that's answered some of the questions that people had about the Rules Committee. And um, we'll be hearing a little bit more from Matt on Countercharge soon. I'm very hopeful. So, Matt, with that said, do you want to take us out? Yep, so we'll be back back very soon, hopefully, uh, whenever schedules allow recording. And we'll be discussing the new Magic Supplement in a bit more depth. Uh, I know we've touched on it a few times today. And me and Steve have had a, a play playthrough of one of the scenarios from that. So um, we'll be able to talk in quite a lot of detail about that. Uh, Mantic have given me permission to uh, to come on and talk about it. So hopefully uh, you've enjoyed this. And um, until next time...
keep countercharging unless your unit does Thanks not for listening and we'll see you next time on countercharge please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com on twitter at countercharge15 or by commenting on the countercharge kings of war podcast facebook group If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.